As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Son of Slovenia, cool as hell, he scores the ball and he rebounds well. In Welcome to 77 Minutes, a Dallas Mavericks podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network, the only Mavericks podcast that has not changed its podcast recording facility. I don't really know what that means, but the Mavericks did change their facility. I thought that was interesting. They're going to be practicing over at the American Airlines Center, which is a, a fun little nuance already early in the season. I'm Tim Cato. I write and talk about the Mavericks. Dave Dufour is just producing today, so he is ever-present in the background, uh, even if you don't hear him today. And we've got Bobby Corral, Mavs.com's own. That's a, that's a weird thing to add a possessive to, .com's, just of, of Mavs.com. That's, the I internet like that owns me, Tim. The internet yes. owns me. Yeah, never forget that. Don't I'm happy to be here with you, man. Forget Bobby Corral. Yeah, this should be fun. This should be fun. Do you have any, uh, just speaking of the facility, which I, I do think is an interesting little quirky thing. Um, do you have any random stories about that court, just the way that it uh, kind of exists under the American Inland Center? I know that every year they typically do media day there. I think the first time me and you met was on that court. Uh, and by, I think it, it was, it absolutely was. I want to say, was it media day 2013 or uh, yeah, that, that was the site of our meeting, uh, the first practice of the season. So we might have we might have seen each other on Media Day 2013, but we didn't speak. Our first conversation alongside Hal Brown was on the American Airlines Center basement practice floor. Uh, what do we talk Probably about? the most significant thing that's ever happened on that court. That's uh, true. Another big moment that happened on that court, Tim, is uh, the Mavs Staff Summer Basketball League. Uh, mm. My team won that tournament, uh, the, the tournament final in 2016, uh, possibly 2017. Don't really remember. I've, I've had so many cool memories since then. Um, I had a big championship game. I also hurt my knee in that game, and I was limping literally for like six months afterward. But I left it all out on the court. And so 
Uh, I, I have a lot of good memories on that court, Tim. So thank you for asking. Two questions about that, and then we'll get to this podcast. Who's the MVP of that team? And using a current Maverick on the current roster, what's your playing style? Okay, uh, so the MVP of that team is this guy named Andy Charles, who used to sell tickets for us, but he uh, does not work for us anymore. He was like six foot five and could run and dunk and shoot, and so he's he basically played like Paul George, um, and was very very good. That's a pretty good player to have on your pickup team. Yeah, I would say that my playing style. Well, you would know probably better than me because you've you've played basketball with me. Um, whoever the worst Maverick of all time is, take all of their worst qualities and eliminate all their good qualities, and that's probably how I play. But generally, I'm more of like glue guy, hustle, defense, rebounds, run the floor, you know, setting screens and pick up ball. I'm I'm that kind of guy. I was going to lovingly call you Brian Cardinal, which. All things considered, not a bad comp. I'll take it. So, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I have like I can dribble the ball and shoot and stuff, but like I don't want to do that. I'll let the good people do that. I'll just go <laughs> do all the other stuff. Uh, as a journalist, I must say that uh, your claim that you can dribble the ball, um, debatable. I mean, I can we bounce the together. ball and it'll come back to me. Okay. That's different. That's that is a different skill than dribbling. That is okay. bouncing the ball. Okay. Dribbling is uh, it's a little more complicated. So we're having you on. Uh, you were actually you were requested by our producer Kent, uh, friends of his. They want to hear Bobby Carolla on the podcast. Everybody oh, wow. wants That's to very hear kind Bobby Carolla. And I think this is a great chance. Uh, we've talked in circles. Uh, the people of this podcast, uh, me, Mike, and Dave, and in my writing on the Athletic, I feel like I keep writing and saying very similar things about the Mavericks throughout the 10 games. And that's not where I expected to be with a seven and three start. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw four different things at you in this podcast. And I just want your reaction on each of these four things. And these four things are very consistent to things I've been writing and saying about the Mavericks, but it'd be nice to get a different perspective on them since I really don't have additional things to, to say at this point. So number one, this team through 10 games just hasn't taught us exactly who they are. They, they uh, uninteresting is too harsh of a word, but it does feel like we haven't learned as much as we would typically through 10 games. How do you feel about that? I think that's probably true because Porzingis has missed half of the 10 games. Um, I, I think they're definitely interesting. And in, if only because, you know, they've had three sort of like benchmark games you know, Atlanta, Denver, and Miami, and they've lost them all by double figures. But they're undefeated in all their other games. So it's right. just, I, like, that's extremely interesting to me. Um, and many of those other games have been super close, which that doesn't mean they're interesting, but they've been very close and competitive and dramatic. Um, you know, I think the, the the thing that we've learned about them is, you know, kind of reaffirming um, hot galaxy brain takes from like three years ago, which is that Maxi Kleba is really good and really important. Um, and it's kind of one of those things where you don't know what you got till it's gone. And, you know, even though Porzingis individually, at least offensively, you know, his shooting numbers have not been very good this year so far. It's only five, six games or whatever. But when he's on the floor, it's a lot tougher to double team Luca than it is whenever he's out of the floor. So, or out, out of the picture. So, um, you know, in that sense, I wouldn't say we've really learned anything new, but it's just kind of like reaffirmed and confirmed pre-existing notions that maybe, you know, whenever you're in the, whenever you're in the thick of it, 82 games into season number one, you know, a few years ago or whatever, like you just weren't really thinking about it. But now 
it's very loud. You know, it's very obvious. And um, I think, I guess, the most interesting development is, um, you know, there was a, a subsection, I guess, of people that thought, yeah, they they need to get another ball handler. They need to get another playmaker. Uh, and then other people said, well, no, Luke is the point guard. You don't need another playmaker. Just give him shooters and give him give him floor spacing and let him work. I mean, this year they've been way better with another scorer on the floor, you know, in, in Jalen Brunson. And so I think, you know, moving forward, I don't know if that guy is going to be a point guard size player like Brunson is. Uh, but certainly, you know, we've seen what this team can do and how much easier Luca's life is whenever they have another guy that can score from anywhere on the floor. So, um, you know, and again, which is something that's already kind of been implied and been thought of and understood. But it's just really like hammering those points home so far this season. I want to touch on Brunson and Luca both uh, later. These are these are two of my four. Staying big picture, what does point differential mean? The Mavericks have won seven of the first 10 games, but they're minus 23 through those 10 games. You know, more, more from an analytics perspective, something, you know, you know very well. What does that represent to the quality of the team? And do you find it concerning or, or what, what takeaways do you have from just their inability? You know, obviously it's, it's fueled by these three huge losses by large point margins. And it's good that they've won the other seven games, even if they've been smaller point margins. That is objectively good. It's something I wrote uh, Tuesday morning. I published a piece in The Athletic talking about that. But what is point differential, even even broadly speaking, if that might be the better way for you to approach it, what does it represent to a team? And uh, what does it represent about how their quality is? Well, after a certain number of games, it's a very good indicator of, I mean, just how good you are. Um, You know, I always think of back to the, 20, I think it was the 2016 Texas Rangers. I know you're a big baseball guy, Tim, so you'll remember what I'm talking about here. But that I year, used to watch games religiously. But yeah. that was when I was in high school and uh, actually had free time. So you were in high school five years ago. So, so you you do remember this? Uh, I graduated actually 2019. Okay. So oh, so you were in middle school actually. Um, yes. So yes, there it is. that year, the Rangers they won something like 32 one-run games, or it's just something like outrageous, just like some ludicrous number. And I think that was also the same year where like one out of every four wins they had all year came against the Houston Astros, who at that point were very bad still. So maybe I'm mixing up the years, but I, there were two years in a row where there was like, what is going on here? This is really strange. And so when your when your win total over the course of 82 games or 162 games or whatever is boosted by a bunch of like, you know, win by the the hair of your chinny chin chin games, and then you get blown out against a lot of good teams, it's pretty easy to look at that team and say like, ah, they're not legit, you know, and sure enough, uh, that Rangers team lost in the first round of the playoffs because all of a sudden they didn't play one run games. Um, You could kind of, to a, a certain extent, say the same thing about the Mavs last season. You know, they didn't win a lot of clutch games last year. They won more than they had the year before, but they won all. Their I was going to say that the, the team two years ago is probably the even better representation where there's yeah. reasons why we felt that they were better than they were. Uh, I can't remember if this is a, a, an opinion you hold, but I know I've talked to people who believe they probably would have beat the Clippers two years ago at Porzingis stayed healthy, that they looked completely up to that series and looked like they were, you know, just as good of a team before they got hurt. And I think that was a very representational team just because their clutch offense was so bad that they really underperformed based off how well they were beating teams. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, their record, I think that year they were, what, 41 and 31 or or no, that, yes. they were 43 Some, and 32, uh, I think, was their record. Yeah. Um, 
but they had the point differential of like almost a 50 win team or just something outrageous because they kept losing all these one point games. And so, yeah, it's kind of the same thing as the Rangers, but just inverted where they're clearly not this bad. However, the fact that they did play so many games is kind of an indicator of, you know, it's sort of there are reasons why they were playing so many close games because they could never get any stops. And, you know, in, in crunch time, their offense clammed up and everything. So, you know, after a certain number of games, a lot of hunches become true and, and numbers can sort of prove that. But I think now for it only being 10 games, I don't think we've really reached like that critical threshold where you can draw too many conclusions because one game is such a, a huge, it makes such a huge difference. You know, like last night, for right. example, the Mavs beat the Pelicans, what, 108 to 92. So they won by 16. They were winning by 21 with like seven minutes left in the game. Um, and then it got down to like eight. And then, and then they sort of split the difference at the end. Now, had they won by eight or had they won by 21, do you learn anything about them based on that? Like probably not. But if you play that same game 82 times, then yeah, you will. So I think um, eventually point differential matters a lot. At this point, I don't really think it matters a whole lot. Um, the level of competitiveness in the three games they've played against very good teams does say a lot though, or I guess the lack thereof, um, because, you know, Denver and Atlanta especially really just kind of ran them off the floor in the first half of both of those games. Um, and, you know, it's about to get real for Dallas because they play Chicago and then they play the Spurs. And then after that, like their next seven games are against teams with winning records. And this year they only have one team against, a, uh, or one win against a team that is currently over 500 and that's Toronto who's six and five. So, um, learn a lot more that way, but yeah, at some point, I don't know when that magic number is, you know, I don't know if it's 20 games, 30 games, 60 games. Heck, I, I don't know if 82 games even tells the whole story, but at some point you do reach a marker in the schedule where if your, you know, point differential is that of a 30 win team and not of a 50 win team, then it doesn't matter what your record is. Like you are probably not legit. Um, if your point differential is, is very poor. And right now, the Mavs' point differential is very poor. Uh, and, of course, we all know the historical significance of finishing top 10 in offense and top 10 in defense um, You know, at the end of the year. Like, if you want to win the championship, you've got to be up there in both of those areas. So, um, you know, there, certain, there certainly is a lot, of, um, a lot of, like, validity to that notion that if your point differential is pretty poor, then, you know, it's, you're going to be up against it in the playoffs. If the Mavericks here in a month have started losing games to bad teams, we saw the warning signs. On the flip side, there's 72 more games for them to figure this out. And if they reach a higher, more consistent level of play and were able to power through some choppy moments by still making sure they just won those games, ultimately that is all that's going to matter this season. So really it's just a, it's just a trend. You mentioned Ooh, Monday's Tim, game. Tim, Tim, can I, can I, can I what jump you, in real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, had, I had a perfect segue and so you're ruining that. I'm sorry. But it's allowed. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, it's, it's, it's not a podcast unless you talk about segues and it's also not a podcast unless you talk about calling it a podcast. So this is like super meta right now. Well, I don't um, even know how you know what a podcast is. This is the only one that exists. That's true. That's true. It is the only mm -hmm. one that exists. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the Mavericks themselves were a great example of this in 2006, 2007. They won 67 games. Uh, their point differential was, I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but it was only like plus two or plus three points per game. Not, now, this is not net rating. This is just points per game because they played a very slow pace. Um, and all year, I remember John Hollinger kept harping on that all year. Like their differential is not good. Like this team is not legit. They're not legit. And uh, sure enough, uh, former future Mav Shadow GM Bob Volgaris was also saying that thing 
that same thing that season. And so they were a very popular kind of, um, you know, sort of upset pick or whatever in the first round against the Warriors among like the really analytic people, uh, you know, the, the most analytical sounding kind of driven people. Um, and so, you know, I know Bob still claims that as like one of his gambling triumphs is calling the Warriors over the Mavs, but it's because, you know, even though the Mavs were whatever, they had 25 more wins than the Warriors, uh, you know, their point differential wasn't that much better than the Warriors. And they also struggled against them head to head that season. So, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's another sort of, uh, another straw in the cap for, for different. That's interesting. I, I, I legitimately did not know that. I, I wasn't that tuned in to basketball or the Mavericks at during that season. Uh, that actually makes a lot of sense looking back. So here's my transition. It was excellent, Bobby. And then you just you just had to bring up cut the, out, the, cut out my whole, the 2007 Mavericks. You cut it off with the worst moment in Mavericks history, uh, more or less. I mean, 2006 is probably worse. So I just I just want to acknowledge that, that um, Mavs employee Bobby Corrala loves talking about their I have their to prove I'm not wow. a homer 100% of the time. That's what this is about. <laughs> So, so you mentioned uh, in Monday's game that they had a 21-point lead and then lost it. Uh, it fell all the way to eight points in that fourth quarter. Number two takeaway that we keep talking about is that one big lineups have subs- been substantially better than the two big lineups that the Mavericks keep running out. I think there's 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 two takeaways. I, I think that the there's no like debate that the one big lineups have been better. Uh, the numbers are very clear there and the numbers are very clear in Monday's game. I think there is an argument or a discussion to be had how much the Mavericks need to use one versus the other, whether Porzingis as the lone center is viable for a full season. And you mentioned Maxi earlier and just the idea of how good he is, you know, how much will that help when he's back? Take this wherever you wish, man. Um, so KP Dwight as a two-man duo in 2019-20 was like chef's kiss level good on offense and defense. Um, you know, even though their their offense kind of found another gear once Dwight went down, they were still really, really good before he tore his Achilles. Last year, KP Dwight combos, very bad. Very, very bad. You know, this year kind of middle of the road, but I mean, I, I feel like the second quarter of last night's game was very a very good illustration of why planning for KP at the five full time is is risky because he picked up three fouls in two minutes trying to guard Valanciunas, and you know were those calls borderline? Yes, would they happen all the time? No, blah blah blah. But like, there are some matchups where the advantage you gain by going one big with KP as the lone big against a guy like Valanciunas or Stephen Adams who he scored 36 points against last year while playing for the Pelicans, or, you know, those guys, guys like that, Jokic. Um, those advantages that you gain are almost wiped out if KP is the only big on the other end of the floor because he's going to be in foul trouble. He's going to be banging with those guys for 82 games, and I don't know if that's sustainable or consistent enough uh, to really rely on. So, um, I mean, I, I, I don't... And I don't think that Maxi Kleber can be the lone big either in the regular season. In the regular season, now the playoffs is different, and that's where this all kind of becomes even more confusing because, like, I think it's sort of understood by everybody, by you, me, and all of the you know a lot of like the 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 thinkers, a lot of the academic folk that 
Porzingis and Maxi are the team's two best centers. Also, it's crazy that I'm labeled as an academic folk, given yeah, that I well, just graduated yeah. high school two years ago. But for, for this time, I'll take yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> KP and, and Maxi are the two best centers on the team, but like I don't want either of them playing too much center in the regular season. Um, too much. Sure. I think it can be like a, a trick that you pull out of the bag. You know, like the Warriors would go, they would like show you the death lineup if they really needed to, you know. Um, but like if you can win with, if you can just ride Dwight and ride Boban and ride Willie Colley sign, if you can. Now, like Willie's been pretty choppy and Boban doesn't always have it, you know. So it's it's not something that's super reliable themselves either. Um, but like baseball teams have innings eaters. I'm just going to keep going back to my baseball metaphors. Like, I don't care what your ERA is. Just eat up 200 innings and just get me to the playoffs, and then we'll lean on the bullpen. We'll lean on the good players, you know. And in the playoffs, KP is the five. Maxi can play five, and you're going to be fine. In the regular season, I just don't know if it is sustainable and if it's if it's tenable for KP because of all of the the health stuff that he's got going on. And frankly, Maxi too, bad back, bad knee, bad Achilles for a six ten guy trying to play center is tough. That's really really tough. So. I don't know. It's very complicated. I don't know if that even answered your question because I don't remember where your question was leading me. But like, it's just really, it really was hard um, to lean all the way into KP at the five full time when there are such clear like limitations and, and risks uh, affiliated with that kind of ideology. Would Maxi and KP playing together mitigate some of those risks, or is it still the same thing that one of them has to play center, or at least they're trading off that center? Does that are your concerns about either of them playing center full time still present if both of them were the big man duo? I like them on the floor together um, if you can play with a really short rotation, but in the regular season you can't really. I mean, like last year, I mean, dude, remember last year they started nine and thirteen or whatever, and basically every game was a must win game for the next four months, and so they started KP and Maxi. And in a lot of these games, I mean, Rick was playing like a seven, eight man rotation. And this is whenever they're playing like six games in eight nights, you know, and um, because Dwight, Willie, Boban, like those three guys cannot be on the floor at the same time. Obviously, you know, their, their minutes can't overlap at all. And so if, if you're starting Maxi at four and KP at five or vice versa, then your bench is really small or really, really big. Uh, so it just it adds in another layer of challenge, uh, I think, to, to kind of meeting out the minutes and, and figuring out who's going to be on the floor with who. Um, again, I think in the playoffs, Maxi and KP together works and, and or should work in theory if Maxi's healthy and KP's healthy. Um, but if you start Maxi and you're playing him 30, 34 minutes, then you are going to expose him to more risk. And the same could be said for KP, obviously, too. So I don't know. It's one of those things where like if they just had a guy that was like a little better than Dwight, uh, or a little better than Willie, or a little better than Boban, then I, th- I don't think that this would be too much of an issue. But as it is right now, I mean, it is kind of a problem because, like, they'll be fine once they get to the playoffs, but you got to get to the playoffs first. And so the, the lineups that they're rolling out now have to start working a little better than they are. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be tough to, to make it there. Yeah, I think that's a really valid assessment. Uh, I, I agree that, you know, it is something that they should be breaking out when they're ready to close out games, uh, even if they do meander a little bit. I, I don't think I quite finished my point or, or tied it together. Uh, the reason they, that that 21-point lead against New Orleans fell to eight in large part was because Porzingis came back in. Boban had been playing well as the only big man, but then Porzingis came back in and paired with Boban, 
And that's when the Mavericks lost like five, five or six points. And then even when the starters came back in, they, they leaked a few more uh, when, when Boban came out uh, in, in Porzingis stayed. And I, I think that if you had swapped Porzingis for Boban right there, that game's over and the starters are out with their four minutes remaining and minute, you know, in terms of minute totals, it would have functionally been the same thing, but because you use that one, you know, it kind of an unforced error with a lineup that, uh, wasn't working well. You know, the two big lineups were not working well the entire game uh, because because they went back to it and, it and it didn't work. And I get and I get it. Like Boban had been playing well. Like leave him out there, reward him for what he'd been doing. But you know, I think it, it, that's that's a situation that's a that's representational of this whole season where they just didn't have to do that and and ended up choosing to do it. And I think that's why that game got extended a few more minutes than it needed to. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City, with David, a sculptor, and his wife Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful design objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son Evan continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and Cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Number three, if you're ready. I'm ready, Rock. I'm ready to rock. Ready to rumble. I'm ready to, to keep this debate going. All right. Well, number three is about a player who does rumble, Jalen Brunson. Oh, wow. I feel he has not dramatically improved as a player, which is not really a slight by any means. He was a very good player last year, and he is doing it in more minutes now. And that is that is something that is not a, something to take for granted. But I feel he has not dramatically improved as a player, but his importance to the team has. What do you what do you feel about that take? Uh, yeah, I think his his light has gotten greener. I guess is probably the the biggest difference between this year and last year. You know, it, it seemed like you know last year because his minutes did overlap with Luca quite a bit. But in in the times whenever Brunson was on the floor with Luca, he was definitely like stand in the corner guy, basically. Uh, whereas now it feels much more closer, like almost like a fifty fifty split on who's handling the ball and who's getting the shot and everything. Um, and I guess his role within the offense has changed a little bit too. He's doing a little more facilitating maybe than he did last year, but it just feels like and I think he, just, his passing reads, his passing has been better. I've, I've seen some passes. I don't think I've ever seen him make before. Yeah. He was that a, is definitely a little, one place of improvement. 
his passing was a little shaky last year, especially at the beginning of the year. Um, but I, I, I think it's maybe just like, yeah, just like instructionally, like go out there and shoot the ball, like find open spaces and shoot because, you know, especially if they have a five man out there that, that can't stretch the floor. Uh, like there was a play last night. He, he turned it over or missed a shot or something. I don't remember what happened, but he took a screen uh, coming off Willie Cauley Stein's screen and, you know, the defense has totally ignored Willie. And so it was two guys on Jalen. And, you know, when that's happening, things get a little stagnant. So if, if Jalen's the one guy out there, it's basically like, dude, go save us. And that's not and a on the flip side. Way. What? On the flip side, and I, and I highlight this play in the article I wrote Tuesday, there was a stop-start move that Brunson had, and that shook him of his defender. But Jackson Hayes, who is a very aggressive shot blocker, also bit so hard because it was was KP as the only big man on the court and KP had popped uh, to the three-point line and Jackson Hayes bit so hard back to KP, completely eliminating uh, his ability to be a shot blocker. And since Brunson had just shook his defender, it was the easiest layup that I think, you know, the Mavericks got the entire night. Uh, so that's that's representational of, of the one big versus two big and, and just the spacing uh, issues um, or, or just the spacing differences, I, I'll even say. I, I think that's that's a better word to use. Yeah, and uh, I mean, if, and, if they're going to be facing those spacing problems uh, or, or when they face those spacing problems, it's at least good to know however undesirable the, the situation is and however difficult the shot is. Like, you have another guy on the team that can make something out of nothing. And that's a very, right. very valuable skill because, like, Tim Hardaway Jr. can shoot. Like, he will shoot when guys are right in his face. Uh, but he is good at that from like 28 feet. He's not necessarily going to be able to get into the in-between space, like the 17 to 19 to 14 feet uh, from the rim and and be able to score the way that Brunson can. So, you know, yeah. if the shots are going to come harder uh, and if, if getting space is going to be more difficult, then you need to have guys on the floor that can that can find the spaces anyway and still produce. And Brunson, and, and Brunson is incredible. Brunson is incredible operating in very tight amounts of spaces. His mid-range game remains superb. The, the reason I said he, he hasn't dramatically improved, again, not by any means a, a slight on him, his efficiency is, is a little bit lower than it was last year. Uh, I think the biggest thing that would unlock a, a further version of Brunson is an increase and in an uptick in three-pointers and even self-created three-pointers if, if you can get there. But, you know, even, even you know, I think volume itself, even, even if he's just taking more catch and shoot or finding more ways to take catch and shoot looks would also be something that would be beneficial to his career and in, in, in taking another step. I think those, will come uh, and those things are he, all about he, the same as last year. I, I think it will get so more far. catch and shoot if he's playing more with Luca. Uh, but if he's, if he's the only guy out there, like he basically is Luca when Luca's on the bench and um, right. he hasn't shown, I, I, I don't know what his numbers are actually on the off the dribble threes. I don't think they're super good, but catch and shoot his numbers are great. Um, if he can develop that, that pull up or the step back or whatever, um, off the dribble threes, I think would like revolutionize his game. Um, because right now he can, he's like money from 19, you know, he'll pull up at the elbow and knock it down all the time. Um, but if he can, if he can pull you out to the three point line and drain it right in your face too, then I think he like, he would be not a max level player, but I mean, like he'd be pretty unstoppable. Our number four and final observation that I keep saying in writing about the Mavericks, I guess since we were just talking Brunson, is that Luca is kind of playing more like Brunson than 
certainly two years ago, and maybe even a little bit more than last year. Is so so his his shots at the rim, his free throw rate, um, not his percentages once he gets to the rim, but how often he gets there has fallen for two straight seasons. Is he settling for mid-range jumpers or just preferring to take them now that that's a very real weapon that he has and he is very good at them? Or is he less able to get to the rim? Because the numbers are clear that he's not getting there as often. But I think that's where we've got hung up on. Is, Is this a decision he's making? I know Dave said that he... You know, he thinks he looks like a guy who just loves taking mid-rangers and hey, they're fun and they're they're less physically demanding. And, and Lucas certainly is someone who feels he does not get calls and gets very frustrated by that. Uh, so there may be some mentality there. Or is it something to do with his athleticism and that stop start burst that we saw two years ago that made him a dominant rim, you know, driving force and a dominant uh you know player who just could get layups and shots within three feet almost at will. Is that more what's changing or more likely as is always almost the answer to all of these, uh, to the, these type of questions is that it's a mix of kind of all three of these things. What, yeah, what are you seeing with him? I think it's a mix for sure. Uh, to your first point, Luca is a guy that loves taking it easy. And I don't mean like being lazy. I just mean like he just loves chilling out and having fun. Like his signature gif is him sitting in a pool, like pulling sunglasses down, like doing the <laughs> thumbs up. Uh, he loves because a Euro families. basket commercial. Yeah. A great one. Yeah. I mean, he loves just like hanging out, shooting floaters, like shooting little turnarounds, shooting runners and stuff. Uh, so anytime he can do that, he's going to do it. Um, I think it's no surprise, you know, two years ago, what were they doing? Well, two years ago, KP was the five, you know, they played because Dwight tore his Achilles. And uh, this is before Willie was really like a, a part of the rotation. It was just Porzingis at the five with Curry, Finney Smith, and Hardaway on the floor. And so Luca was able to just get to the rim. And Curry's important in that there, too. Curry's, Curry, Curry's addition two seasons ago should also be highlighted. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's sure. someone who really impacted spacing as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and like, last year was a, a, a lot more too big, or Porzingis just simply wasn't playing. And whenever KP's out, like, everything is tougher for Luca. Um, everything. And, you know, so they're, they're, that cannot be sort of under uh, understated or whatever, overemphasized, or whatever the phrase is. Um, you know, I think some of it too is like we're starting to see teams just defend them differently and starting to see teams defend around the league differently. I mean, like this year, like it's typically, it's, it's often been the case throughout Dwight Powell's career that if he's on the floor, there are some teams that are just going to ignore him, you know, and, and let him stand at the three-point line. But like it's extreme now. You know, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith is extremely open. Maxi Kleba is extremely open. And, like, more even than they already have been. And they're among the most open shooters in the league. Like, teams are really, really loading up on Luka, especially when Porzingis isn't on the floor. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, this is screenshot age. Like, people are having a field day with screenshots because, you know, everyone thinks Jake is a bum and everything. But, like... You'll see Luca dribbling into like literally four or five guys. Uh, they, I mean, they treat him like Giannis. They treat him like teams used to treat LeBron. Uh, ultimate amounts of defensive rotation and, and tilting the floor and crowding the lane and everything. Um, because whenever he gets to the rim, you know, he finishes like seventy percent of the time or something. And you know that so that's not good. Uh, it's not good for the for the Mavs, and it's not it's not good for the defense either because you're leaving so many guys open. They just haven't been able to punish them, which I guess is part of the plan too. Because Finney Smith and these guys are sort of inconsistent. But 
Um, you know, I think that's part of it. And I also think too, you know, it, it feels like, uh, it, it feels like Luke is really trying to share the ball, uh, and not share the ball as like, I'm going to pass to assist to, I'm going to pass to get assists more. Like I'm just going to give the ball up more. Um, you know, whether that's to Jalen Brunson or Tim Hardaway or somebody else. And so at times it almost feels like Luke is like, I'm going to shoot this time down the floor, you know? And so I, I think he's still trying to find the balance of like when to, when to hunt for shots, when to let his foot off the gas, when to let other people kind of take over. Uh, and then also when to like, when to say like, I'm taking over this effing game now. Um, like Dirk for a very long time got off to like super slow starts in the first quarter, like going back to the Josh Howard days, like Josh Howard averaged like 15 points per game in the first quarter. It felt like for like three seasons and would always end up with 19 because Dirk would just play through him in the first quarter. And then like the second half, I'm going to take all the shots now. And so like finding the balance of when to say like, yeah, it's go time. And when I'm going to let other people do their thing is um, I think it'd be like Luca's biggest challenge or biggest step to take this year. But in the meantime, it's, Teams are leaving a lot of players on this team open right now. And if Porzingis is not playing or not in the rotation or whatever, then that only gets magnified because then your big man, uh, really none of your big men can shoot, especially if Kleb is also out. So that's another that's another issue. Um, so I think it's a combination of all those things, really. I, I, I was going to conclude this thought, this final point, by bringing up Dirk, so I'm glad you did. It's certainly the very best players in the league have different gears that they shift through and the gears are not uh, effort or intensity as much as the way that they play and the way that they dominate. And they know, you know, Dirk always knew late in games that he could put the ball on the, on, on the floor and get to the rim and, you know, often just get free throws. And, and that was something he was incredibly good at. And if, if Luca is, you know, if, if the best thing for him, if he will look his best self, if he will look like someone who is legitimately the best player alive in the final couple months of the season headed into the playoffs. Uh, and, and if to unlock that and, and to allow that he is taking it a little bit easier, isn't taking as much physical contact in the opening uh, month or two of, of, of this year uh, is maybe even doing a little bit of working himself into shape. I think that's fine. Obviously, we haven't seen him do that. I agree that that's going to be his his big thing to to work on and and to you know reach a level of just complete comfort with who he is as a player and what he's able to do and in what kind of gears to engage at what point. But I I do agree that you know especially ten games in you know I I might have been a, a touch more worried a few games ago. And, uh, you know, I, I guess a buzzer beating game winning step back uh, does does kind of bring you back to just how, you know, incredible this this player is, which is not, certainly something I never forgot. Uh, you know, he's 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 done incredible stuff every game and he's been incredible this year. But, you know, I, I think I think that is something he needs to, to work on and, uh, and and just finding those gears and, and when to kind of churn between them is is going to be a big thing for him. So. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think it's also important too. like, you know, this is, it's kind of a preach patience sort of message or ethos or whatever, but like, you know, the Hawks and Nuggets kind of just like completely schemed him out of the game. And that, that is a big problem. And now, you know, KP didn't play in that Nuggets game and that would have, I think, totally changed it because I think in, 
whenever both Luka and KP have played against the Nuggets, I, I think they've won every game against Denver that they've played. That's only like two or three games. Um, but they went undefeated against Denver last year when both Luka and KP played. So that that's like something, but it's a small sample size. Um, but at any rate, I mean, like, you know, there are nights whenever Luka is going to have to step up a lot and take 35 shots or something. Uh, there are nights whenever he can, you know, maybe pass it a little more. I, I think he's, I think there is just a lot of figure it outness. And, and it. some of um, this, and some of it could be like fatigue related to the Olympics too. But like, I'm like, we saw it last year, you know, game seven, first half was like the most dominant basketball player that the city of Dallas has ever seen. And then in the fourth quarter, the Clippers still ran away with it. So some of it is just like it's a marathon, not a sprint, yeah. you know. And some of it is that even though it's like numbers and his, his, his otherworldliness and his incredible moments are all still there, he is minus 76 on the season. By far, far and away, the team was probably the worst in the NBA. There might be a player or two that's that's worse than that. And, and that that that's a lot of our feelings around The Pistons do exist, okay. Tim. The Pistons exist. Well, not in the NBA as far as I'm concerned. They play NBA teams, but that's that's a different story. Um, yeah, and so that's that's some of it, and that's also why we have really high feelings about Brunson because lineups with him on the floor are, uh, I have it right here, are uh, plus fifty seven. So that that's a lot of the Brunson versus Luca, Luca feeling like even those numbers are as high as they are, and Brunson's numbers not being quite as changed from last year as, as people might think. It does feel different when one's on the court versus the other, or when Brunson's on the court with Luca. And I think I think that's a lot of where these these feelings and emotions come from. But anyway, speaking of feelings and emotions, uh, you have a concert to attend tonight. Did you know Tame Impala is uh, only one person? Uh, I didn't know that, Tim. <laughs> I thought it was actually a thirty-five piece band, so I'm kind of disappointed. Mm, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, it's just going to be one dude up there doing stand up. Actually, I'm pretty sure that's what Kevin Parker's good at. So I do want to. They don't do any music. Does, does he do that? I don't know. I don't know. I thought he. I thought he was doing a lot of like animal work. Like he. He's taming like wild animals. He's like corralling and polishing. Anyway, currents. Currents is a very important album. Album to me, and I'm. I'm very. Uh, very jealous of you. Uh, I am not attending this concert. It's a great but, album. Uh, it's a great album. And the Slow Rush is a really good album too. Their new one. So uh, I bought these tickets in 2019. So I'm. I'm excited. I finally get to go. Incredible. See them. Him, them, incredible, whatever. incredible. Yeah, I think the touring band is Pond. Pond is also a pretty good band. Uh, so Australian band. I'm a, I'm a fan of them as well. Anyway, let's get you out of here. Yeah, I saw them at a Toyota Music Factory right before the Pandy. So it's kind of a, a nice full circle. Nice, nice. Well, you are a, you are a cultured man who uh, also knows how to talk a little bit of hoops. So we appreciate having you on. This was fun. This was illuminating, and we will be back next week. Thanks all for listening. Don't fight the future, please be nice to Luca. Future four-time MVP. Oh my god!